Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 11, book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish theologian and a philosopher, and he made this profound statement. He said, there comes a midnight when all of us must unmask. All of us wear masks, and all of us try to hide our true identity. And every one of us, in one way or another, life is like a masquerade. We seek to hide our faults from others to cover our inadequacies so they will not be seen. And we think that the masks we are wearing hide our real selves from those who would know us. However, there's a final point in life when we shall all be unmasked. And that point is when we face our own mortality. You see, in death, when all of a man's life is laid bare, Before Almighty God, there are no more masks of hypocrisy. Most people fear death. They don't even want to talk about it or let alone think about it. Someone has said life is not comprehended truly or lived fully unless the idea of death is grappled with honestly. You know, we don't talk an awful lot about death in the church I think I told you before, the Puritans spent an awful lot of time talking about death, not because they had this morbid attraction to death, but because they thought it was important for us as believers to understand not only how to live well, but to die well. That was important to them, and they they taught on it a lot, as a matter of fact, if you've read any of the Puritans. The Apostle Paul said this, and he echoed really what the Puritans thought, Christ, he said in Philippians 1.20, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And that's really what the Puritans would try to get across as well, that it was important for us to understand that how we died was a reflection of what we believed in this life. And they wanted us to know that. Here's what Matthew Henry wrote around the turn of the 19th century. He said this, though the grace of faith is of universal use throughout our whole lives, yet it's especially so when we come to die. That faith has its greatest work to do at last, to help believers to finish well, to die to the Lord so as to honor him by patience, hope, and joy, so as to leave a witness behind them of the truth of God's word and the excellency of his ways. Now, you might say, well, Matthew Henry, that's, those are really nice words. They're well-spoken. But those weren't just empty platitudes for Matthew Henry, because on his own deathbed at age 52, this is what Matthew Henry said to a friend. You have been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. Here's mine. That a life spent in the service of God and communion with him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this world. Those were the dying words he wanted his friend to remember about him. And my friends, facing death is the acid test of our faith. Let me say that again. 
When we face death, and should the Lord tarry, we will all face death at some point. Nobody gets out of this alive. The mortality rate is still 100%, my friends. Unless the Lord returns before then, we will face death. And it will be a test of our faith. Well, the author of Hebrews now gives us multiple examples of those who lived and then died in their faith. And he briefly mentions three of the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, in our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 to 22. And he calls to attention the incidents in each man's life just before he died. Now, in Isaac's case, he doesn't state specifically that he was near death, But this incident happened when he was very old, very feeble, and very blind. In the case of Jacob and Joseph, the author states specifically that they are on their deathbed. In each case, as they faced death, remember this, none of the promises of God had yet been fulfilled. Each one of them, on their deathbed, had spent their whole life living by faith, trusting in the promises of God. And when it came time for the Lord to call them home, not one of those promises had yet been fulfilled. In fact, the circumstances of their lives seemed contrary to the fulfillment of those promises. It just wasn't that they weren't filled or you could see it happening very closely. Matter of fact, it looked like the opposite was about to happen. These men had lived all of their lives hearing about, believing in God's promises, but God had not yet delivered them to the promised land. And even so, they all died with their faith and their focus on things to come, trusting that God would fulfill his promises, even though the circumstances in their life look contrary to that. And that's what our text is going to teach us here today. By faith, we face death trusting in God's promises, even when the circumstances of our life seem to contradict those promises. So let's go to our text, shall we? And we'll read all three verses together, and then we'll come back and unpack each one. Beginning in verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Well, let's look at the faith of Isaac, shall we, in verse 20. I'm just going to tell you right now, you might want to put your thumb in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, because we're going to go back and forth. All three of their stories are found in Genesis, and so we're going to Kind of work back and forth. But here's your first point while you're finding your way in Genesis. I'm multitasking you as we go. Verse 20, point number one. By faith, Isaac blessed his children, trusting in God to fulfill his promises. By faith, Isaac blessed his children, trusting in God to fulfill his promises. Now we find Isaac's story here, or at least the part that we want to talk about here this morning in Genesis chapter 27. So turn there with me, if you would, please. 
And we find us really in the first three or four verses here of Genesis chapter 27. Now it came about, verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see, that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. And Isaac said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Well, again here we see from the story that Isaac is old and blind. He calls his favorite son Esau. Now Esau was his favorite because Esau was rugged and a, a man's man, if you will. He was a hunter, and uh, he would go out and kill game and then bring it back, and, and uh, his, his uh, mother would make the stew or he would make the stew just the way his father liked it. They, they enjoyed it. He really, really loved Esau. Jacob is kind of a mama's boy. And so Isaac is just kind of, uh, when you look at the life of Isaac, it's really not that spectacular. But he's kind of a mama's boy, and there's nothing really special about his life. But here's the problem, though. He says, go ahead and cook these things, and then come on back, and I'm going to confer my blessing on Esau. Now, that would seem to make sense because Esau's the oldest. So this blessing, the oldest would receive a double portion of the family inheritance. So the oldest would get 50%, and the, then the rest would divide up the other 50% between them, however many children they have. But the oldest would get a double portion, if you will. So that was the custom of the day, and that would be left for Esau, the oldest, the firstborn son. And the blessing would also include words of prophecy about what God was going to do in their lives, and the blessing would reflect that. But turn back just one page in Genesis to Genesis chapter 25. Now you remember here that the Lord had already told Rebekah what was going to happen, didn't he? See, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, I'm sorry, we'll pick it up in verse 22. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is so, why then, am I, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and watch this, the older shall serve the younger. So... Here we find that God had already prophesied to Rebekah about the prophetic future of both Esau and Isaac. Jacob, the father of the nation Israel, was the younger. Esau, the father of the nation of Edom, was the older. Isaac, however, had a natural liking towards Esau, whereas Jacob, again, was kind of a mama's boy. So what's happening here? God has said... The younger, I mean, the older will serve the younger. In other words, Esau is going to serve Jacob. But Isaac says, come to me, Esau, I'm going to give you my blessing. Notice the conflict here. Here's what God says is going to happen. Isaac says, 
I'm going to give my blessing to Esau. Well, of course, as you know, the rest of the story doesn't work out that well. Jacob dressed up his brothers in his brother's garments and took Mama's stew to his aged and nearly blind father to trick him and his brother out of this blessing and his inheritance. And being deceived, Isaac inadvertently fulfilled God's earlier prophecy to Rebekah by conferring the blessing on Jacob. Now, to his credit, when Isaac finds out that he's been deceived, he doesn't revoke the blessing in anger. He knows he's been tricked into giving Jacob the blessing. Everything about the way it was done was underhanded and wrong, and yet Isaac refused to reverse what he had done. It seemed to me that he realized that God's word to Rebekah at the birth of the twins would truly come to pass. Because in Genesis 27, verse 33, he says, I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. Later, he gives Esau a blessing as well, but it's much, much less significant. Now, just before Jacob fled to Haran, Isaac charged him not to take a wife. Do you remember this? Don't take a wife from the land of Canaan. Then he said to Jacob this in Genesis chapter 28. Go over a couple more pages to your right. In verses 3 and 4. He says this to Jacob. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. What does that sound like? That sounds like the Abrahamic covenant, doesn't it? We're going to a great nation. Verse 4, may he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. In other words, may you inherit the blessings that were that uh, from Abraham, Abraham, that God had given to Abraham, that God said we're going to go to Jacob, not Esau, that Isaac tried to give to Esau instead of Jacob. You with me? Okay. I want you to remember at this time that Isaac is giving him this instruction, Jacob doesn't even have a wife, let alone a company of peoples descended from him. Neither Isaac nor Jacob owned a square foot of the promised land except for a burial cave. I want you to remember that as well. But by pronouncing the blessing, Isaac demonstrated faith that God's promises would not fail, even though there's no indication at the time they would ever be fulfilled. Do you see what he just did there? He just said, I'm going to confirm my blessings. Here's what God has said is going to happen. You're the one that's going to receive it because God said it so, even though we don't own a square foot of land in the land that God has promised us. And even though you got the blessing through trickery, this was all part of God's sovereign plan. And we, you, even I couldn't thwart it is basically what he's saying. Now, why is Isaac in the hall of faith? Why is he even in this chapter? Because when facing death by faith, he made sure his children were blessed regarding the future. He didn't accomplish a great deal from a worldly point of view, but he passed his faith along to his children. At the end of his life, when he's facing death, he blessed his children, trusting in God to fulfill his promises, 
even when the circumstances in life seem to contradict those promises. And that's why Isaac's name is in this chapter. Now, my friends, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph were all wealthy men, comparatively. But on their deathbeds, they were not talking about their earthly riches, were they? You know what they were most concerned about? They were concerned about spiritual riches. What kind of legacy have I left behind? How will my children walk with the Lord? Will they walk with the Lord? They thought about the future and God's blessing, and the promises of God gripped their souls as they were preparing for death. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph at death were concerned about their children and that they would have the blessing of God. Here's my question. What are we passing on to our children? The thing of most value to pass on to our children is not our wealth. It's not your name. It's your spiritual blessing. The most important thing you can give your children is a foundation and understanding of the Lord. We must teach our children to love, to obey the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as he's manifested in Christ. What will your children remember when you are called home? Will it be your wealth? Will it be your humor? Will it be your great name? Will it be your great person? I trust not. But that your children will remember you as men and women of faith who were not afraid of death and believed in the one true living God. When you die, the most important thing you leave behind will be your Christian faith. Beloved, when I die, you will know what I believed and how I lived by watching my children and my grandchildren after I'm gone. Their lives will reveal what sort of man I was. They're going to reflect it all, my strengths and my weaknesses. But if they live for Christ, whatever example I live can fade away. But if they don't, whatever influence I had in their lives is not of much importance. So point number one, by faith, Isaac blessed his children, trusting in God to fulfill his promises. Let's look at verse 21 then in Hebrews 11. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worship leaning on the top of his staff. Point number two, facing death by faith, Jacob blessed his grandchildren, trusting in God to fulfill his promises. And we find this in Genesis chapter 48. Let's turn there. Beginning in verse 1, now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. 
And so he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous and will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is now Bethlehem. So we find this event recorded for us in Genesis 48. Jacob and all of his sons and their families had migrated to Egypt during the famine. Do you remember that? And Joseph became the second most powerful man in Egypt. Joseph heard that his father was ill, so he took his two sons to visit his father, his aged father, who's not well. And Jacob recalled God's appearance to him when the Lord reaffirmed the Abrahamic covenant. And then he claimed Joseph's sons for himself as heirs. In effect, that meant designating Joseph as the firstborn who would receive a double portion. Once again, God's plan is in work. Joseph is not the oldest. He is the youngest. But yet he is going to receive the blessing. Reuben was the natural firstborn, and he had forfeited his position by having relations with his father's concubine. You remember that, Genesis 35. So now Joseph's two sons each receive a full portion of their inheritance. But when Jacob went to lay hands on the young men for their blessing, you remember what he did? He deliberately crossed his hands, laying his right hand on Ephraim, the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh, the older. This troubled Joseph, who thought, well, my father's not doing very well. Perhaps he doesn't know what he's doing. He tried to correct it. But Jacob replied that he knew exactly what he was doing. And then in verse 19 in chapter 48, his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. There's our phrase from the Abrahamic covenant. Now, you need some background, really, to understand what is taking place in this blessing. First of all, Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of the second most powerful man in Egypt. What kind of life do you think they had growing up? Oh, they had been raised in the most luxurious conditions in the world. No doubt they were close personal friends, perhaps, with the Pharaoh's children. Servants attended to their every need. They received the best education in the world at that time. They were heirs to a huge financial estate. They easily could have succeeded in whatever they chose to do. And in those circumstances, it may have been natural for a grandfather to bless his grandsons by saying, 
May you prosper in Egypt, even as your father has prospered. And may you amass great fortunes and enjoy the best the world has to offer. But instead, Jacob, a lowly shepherd, who's a pilgrim in Egypt to avoid starvation in the famine-stricken land of Canaan, adopts these two as his own and then confers the blessing of Abraham on them. Now, a worldly-minded parent might have thought this. Well, whoop-de-doo. I mean, you're giving them a double portion of nothing. (laughs) You're giving them a double portion of the famine-stricken land in Canaan. But you don't own a square foot of it, except for the burial cave. That's your inheritance? You're getting a double portion of the burial cave? Whew. But here in Egypt, they got everything that anyone could dream of having. You're giving them a piece of dry ground that you don't really even own. You're giving away. But what is Jacob really giving his grandsons here? By faith in God's yet unfulfilled promises, he's giving the boys the spiritual blessing of Abraham, which were far better than the worldly blessings of Egypt. Even though there's not a shred of evidence that God would give the land to Jacob's descendants, Jacob believed God's promises and hands them off to his grandson. He blesses his grandsons. He trusted God's promises for the future and saw a day when his descendants would be in the land of Canaan. He wanted to make sure his grandsons embraced their true spiritual heritage. If you stay in Egypt, my sons, you cannot be blessed. You need to leave that behind. You need to leave behind the worldly riches, and you need to move towards the spiritual riches. By blessing his grandsons, he was moving them from worldly success to godly poverty. But he did it by faith, because he trusted that God would keep his word. My friends, it's a tragedy today that many Christian parents today hope more that their children and grandchildren will succeed materially than they will succeed spiritually. We seem to be very focused on making sure they have the best education or the best sports training or the best whatever it is so that they can succeed financially in this world, oftentimes leaving behind the most important legacy and inheritance you can give your children, and that's a strong foundation in the Lord. Many parents would be thrilled to hear that one of their kids got accepted into medical school or landed a, a nice big contract with a professional sports team, but if they heard their kids were headed off to a mission field in a poor country, they'd try to talk some sense into them. They wouldn't want them to throw their lives away with nothing materially to show for it. Besides, they'd rather have their grandkids nearby anyway. That is a thoroughly worldly attitude. First and foremost, we should want our children to walk with God wherever that may lead them in terms of career or ministry or geographical location. Let's look at the last verse then, verse 22. 
Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. We find this in Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 and 25. That's probably the quickest you've ever read through Genesis, isn't it? Just one, one short time there, 50 chapters. Point number three in your notes, facing death. By faith, Joseph trusted in God's promises even when circumstances seemed to contradict those promises. Let's look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 and 25, near the very, very end. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. As he's dying, Joseph tells his brothers, his fellow Jews, that God would bring them back to the land which he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he made them swear that they would carry his bones with them when they returned to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. Joseph demonstrated many instances of strong faith in his life, didn't he? He had resisted the the attempts by Potiphar's wife to seduce him. He remained true to God's word, even though he was imprisoned unjustly. His faith enabled him to interpret dreams on more than one occasion. And he dealt in a godly manner with his brothers who had tried to kill him or wrong him for sure. And he administered the food relief program fairly without greed to himself. But the author of Hebrews kind of skips all of those parts of his life and picks out this one thing to list about Joseph in the hall of faith. Why does he do that? You see, the main reason is that it shows us a man facing death at a time when God's promises seemed unlikely to ever be fulfilled. He's in Egypt. He knows he's not leaving. God had given the promises to Abraham more than 200 years before, but here were his descendants living in Egypt, not in Canaan. They were doing quite well in Egypt at this point, as a matter of fact, thanks to Joseph. And their enslavement would actually come following after his death. And it would still be another 200 years before Moses comes along out of Egypt. And then 40 years after that, before they entered the land of Canaan. Yet Joseph makes mention of the Exodus and orders that they take his bones that were left in Egypt. By doing so, he was disassociating himself from all that success of Egypt and associating himself with God's promises and God's people. He didn't want a grand tomb in Egypt in his name where generations of Egyptians would pay homage to the man who had saved their country from ruin. Instead, he wanted his final resting place to be in the land that God had promised. Though he was old and dying, Joseph saw past Egypt 
into the future. He knew that God would one day keep his promise and deliver the Israelites from Egypt and would give them a homeland of their own. Because he believed so firmly in this promise, he instructs the Israelites not to leave his bones in Egypt, but to make sure they carry his body with them and give him a burial place in the promised land. Might I remind you, that's not yet for another 240 years at this point. How could Joseph be so confident in the future? First, he knew what God had promised his great-grandfather Abraham. Secondly, he, his own life proved that God keeps his promises. He knew that Israel didn't belong in Egypt. He didn't want his bones staying in Egypt. The Bible tells us that Moses took those bones with them when they left Egypt. And years later, Joshua buried them in Shechem. There his bones rest in the dust of the earth to this day. Joseph lived and died without ever hearing about Moses, my friends without ever hearing about Joshua. But he knew nothing of their mighty deeds. But in his old age, God gave him the faith to believe that although he was dying in Egypt, his bones, his future belonged in the promised land. Joseph is saying, I may be dying, but I believe that God will keep his promises. Bury me in the promised land. And they did. Now, what can we learn from these glimpses at the last words of these three patriarchs that are in here for a reason? Number one, my friend, the greatest things you, the greatest thing you can do is to pass your faith along to your children and your grandchildren. That is by far your number one priority as a parent. Abraham gave it to Isaac. Isaac gave it to Jacob. Jacob gave it to Joseph. Joseph gave his faith to the whole nation of Israel. The Christian faith is not a sprint. It's not really even a marathon. You know what it really is? It's like a relay race. I live this life and I pass it on to the next one. They live their life, they pass it on to the next one. They live their life in their past. And so it has went on and on and on and on. I have faith because someone shared it with me. And someone gave it to that person who then shared it with me. On and on it goes. You know, as the years quickly pass, I'm seeing more and more that passing my faith along in the work is the work of an entire lifetime. It's not just a little glimpse at the end. And it's never done, no matter how old I get. And as long as I live and have life and breath, I'm to be like old Jacob with his children and his grandchildren, sharing my faith. Here's number two. The saddest thing that can happen to you is to become bitter in your old age. Why do I say that? We've all seen it happen, haven't we, with people that we know and we love? They become bitter and angry and filled with resentment because life didn't turn out the way they thought it would. But Abraham had a promise from God, but he never saw it completely fulfilled. Isaac, 
He had the same promise, but he died without seeing it fulfilled. Jacob, same promise, he died. Joseph, same promise. If ever anyone had a right to be, uh, to, to be bitter, it would have been these three men. You mean I live my whole life by faith, trusting in God, and even here on my deathbed, I'm not going to see it? And God says, yes, that's exactly what I mean. They lived, these men lived and died with a promise unfulfilled, but to their credit, they never gave up hope. They never quit trusting in God and his promises, ever. We are to finish our journey here on earth the same way, by faith in God's promises. Lastly, the happiest way to live your life is to realize that God's work, my friends, is bigger than you are. Can I say that again? The work that God is doing, the work that God is doing in your life and in your children's life and in your grandchildren's life is way bigger than you. Way bigger. And that's why Isaac saw God's hand at work in spite of the trickery of Rebekah and Jacob. And that's why Jacob blessed his grandchildren before he died. And that's why Joseph said, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. Bury me in the promised land. Because God will keep his promises. And I'm going to live my life that same way with that same truth every day. They all said the same thing. God's promises are true. I may never see the final fulfillment, but that doesn't matter. My sons will see it. Or my daughters will see it. Or my grandchildren will see it. I may die, but everything God said will eventually come true. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph were just three links in that relay race we've been talking about. They never gave up believing in God. They died in faith and in the faith. My friends, we may live for 80 or 90 plus years, maybe more, and never see all that we dream about. We may pray for things that never happen or we never get to see them. We may trust God for things that do not appear. We may struggle against a great difficulty for many years. And the way may be hard and the road may be steep and the climb may be treacherous and the path may be lonely. We may climb and climb and climb and still never reach the summit of what God has in store. It may not be given to us to see everything we'd like to see, but it is given to us, listen carefully, to live faithfully day after day after day so that when we are gone, others will stand on our shoulders and see things that we never saw. And this brings us to a tremendous truth. God's plans are bigger than mine. I know we're all great planners, but they don't touch God's sovereign plan. My part is to live for God and to pass my faith along to my children and to my grandchildren. And I must live so that those things for which I'm praying and those things which I dream about may happen someday by the grace of God. But I trust in him. And this is how a believer lives their life well, by trusting in God's promises, even when the circumstances of our life seem to contradict those promises. And guess what? How do we die well? 
the same way. By trusting, by faith, we face death, trusting in God's promises, even when the circumstances of our life seem to contradict those promises. Beloved, the acid test of our faith is when we face death and die well, trusting in his promises. And I pray by God's grace that you live well. And when that day comes that the Lord has ordained to call you home, that you will die well by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a difficult subject for us. We don't like talking about it. We don't like thinking about it. But, Lord, your word is very clear. We are to continue to trust you. We are to continue when we face death. We are to continue to trust you just as we have all the way through our lives. And regardless of what the circumstances are against us, Lord, we don't waver in our faith. We don't waffle. We know what we believe. We know who you are. We trust in you and in your promises that you are the God that you say you are and you have done the things that you have said you do you've done and you will do the things that you say you will do we live each day like that to glorify you and before you call us home we have one more opportunity to share with others what it means to live a life of faith Father, give us the strength. I pray that we will live and die well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.